I'm talking about why are you here today? What's the point of coming to church? Uh, when I started going to church, it must have been a long time ago because I was young then. Um, and I started going to church following a real conversion experience. And I suppose a number of people who knew me were asking me, how come you've started going to church and so on. But one person just looked and said, what for? And that always stuck in my mind over the years, you know, what for? She obviously couldn't see any reason or relevance for her or for me to be in a church. And that simple question has always stuck with me, what for? So I've been thinking about answers to that question. And I was kind of prompted to two things, uh, both of them, as it happens, that came up on Facebook. I'm not sniffy about Facebook. I know a lot of people are, but I'm not. Okay, so two things that came up on Facebook anyway. The first one was a story of a young woman that I think she was in America, but it had gone viral. And her husband had died of cancer, and she'd been going through a horrible time. You know, this young father had suffered greatly for about 18 months, and he'd had rounds of chemo that hadn't worked. And, and then he died, and she was left to bring up two young children, and she had to break the news to them. So they had a terrible time, and she felt that the church had failed them. Now, the church they went to, they were not bad people, not at all. Uh, in an age where people don't generally go to church, where people say, well, what for, you know, um, they were working hard to encourage people to come. So they opened up a coffee bar. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. We like to give you tea and coffee. It's a way of welcoming people, isn't it? So they also worked hard to bring really good quality contemporary music. Nothing wrong with that. I love old hymns, but we don't want to be stuck in the last century, do we? Um, you know, I, I think she said they'd even got a smoke machine. I can't quite see the point in that, but I sort of understand that they were trying to create an atmosphere, you know, and give people an experience and so on. But the point was that when this young couple were in this terrible situation, they didn't want the coffee and they didn't want the music. They wanted Jesus. And the church, working so hard to draw people in, were kind of forgetting about him. But he is what the church has to give more than anything. Jesus, and when you're ill, when you're suffering, when you're sad or scared or depressed or dying or grieving... Only Jesus can comfort you and strengthen you and help you. So what for? Jesus. Now the second thing that came to mind was also through Facebook. And a friend of mine had got this debate going on. It was nothing to do with me, but it was coming up on my timeline and I was reading it. Now, they say there are two things you should never argue about, don't they? Politics, we've all had enough of that. And religion. And this was an argument about religion. And people were talking about Stephen Fry, who had said that he doesn't believe in God. And so they were kind of trying to put up a defense against what he said. They were trying to defend God and Christianity, and they were getting hopelessly tangled up. I mean, 
They were talking about the wrath of God and vengeance against a terrible world. And they were going on about the Old Testament. And then they started talking about Adam and Eve. And then they started talking about the Philistines. And I really don't know what that was about. But um, my friend, who's a very polite person, (laughs) just said, with the utmost respect, none of this sounds like good news to me. And that really caught my attention. Because that's my calling and yours, if you're a Christian, is to share with the world good news, you know. The good news that God has given me to tell people is that God lives and God is love. That God is good, that God is forgiving and gracious and kind and he cares for the poor and his arms are open to every one of us. So, what for? Good news. And you might say that the second point is a part of the first, really, because Jesus is the good news. At the very beginning of his public ministry, he read out a promise that had been given years before. And he basically said, this promise is coming true in me because it's all about me. And this is what he said. He read out this, the words from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendants and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And there's a modern translation where it says those who are oppressed, it translates it the burdened and battered. So that's who God prioritizes, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, and anybody who feels burdened and battered by life circumstances. And you see what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm the one. It points to me. The Messiah, this promise is fulfilled now because I'm here and I am the good news. So what for? What's the church for? To connect with him or reconnect with him. He's enough. And he said it when he defined the good news this way. Good news is the business of the church. On a different day, Jesus defined good news this way. He said... I have come that they, and that's all of us, may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's elsewhere translated real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And again, he's saying, come to me, this is what I have to give. Now, there is a lot of bad news in the world, we know that. It does have to be said, though, that we're better off than most. In this year's so-called happiness survey, the UK came 19th in the world. We've gone up a bit. We were 23rd. And in case you're wondering, Norway came top this year. Now, I don't know how they measure happiness. I don't know what the criteria they are that they use, but I don't think they're asking whether we have this quality of life that Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about life that's measured by whether you're breathing and you've got a pulse. I don't think he was even talking about life after death. It's abundant life, according to his definition. So what do we come to church for? We come seeking this 
kind of life which is only found in Jesus. He wants you not to just exist, not to be what the government called just about managing, but to be fully awake and conscious of all that's good and energized and purposeful and grateful and having a sense of well-being and peace. That's aliveness. I think of it as being spiritually strong, and that can be when you're physically weak or weak in any other way. You can be spiritually strong. So God says to us, don't settle for less. Don't get sucked into a religion that shrinks aliveness or starves it or cages it. Jesus never started a movement like that. He talked about the kingdom of heaven being here on the earth, which later on the New Testament describes as fullness and freedom and life in the spirit. So the best reason to go to church is because the church is a global movement dedicated to aliveness. One writer said this, before Christianity was a rich and powerful religion, associated with buildings and budgets and crusades, colonialism or televangelism. It began as a revolutionary, non-violent movement, promoting a new kind of aliveness in the margins of society. It dared to honor women and children and unmarried adults in a world dominated by married men. It dared to elevate slaves. It defied religious taboos that divided people into us and them. And it made the audacious claim that the earth belongs not to rich tycoons, but to the creator who loves every sparrow and wildflower. It was a peace movement, a love movement, a joy movement, a justice movement, an integrity movement, an aliveness movement. That's what the church is for. Now, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we lose our way. Sometimes we forget our priority to seek aliveness. But you know, then there is more good news because it's never too late. There are many stories in the Bible of people who thought it was too late. Abraham, Joseph, Zechariah. But God, who makes everything new, says to us that however old we are, whatever twists and turns the church has taken, we can keep on learning and rethinking and growing and dreaming and discovering. Being fully alive means it's never too late. Now, we can get a bit cynical, can't we? You know, if bad things have happened around us or to us or maybe even because the church let you down. But it's never too late to reorientate and change focus and even change direction. We can all do that if it's what you need to do to seek aliveness. That debate sparked by Stephen Fry was because he'd said, how can God, if he is all-powerful, allow bad things to happen? Well, Jesus never promised us bad things wouldn't happen. His good news about aliveness was for people on the receiving end of oppression, remember, those who were battered and bruised. He even said, in this world you will have trouble. But ever since those horrible terrorist attacks, I keep coming back to this verse from John chapter 1. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, the Bible never said this world would be all sweetness and light. 
only they're in the darkness. And, you know, after Manchester and London, the world did seem to be a very dark place, but there's light in the midst. There is good news. There is spiritual life. And you don't have to vaguely hope for it. You can know it. John, who wrote those words, later on wrote letters, as we know, to the churches. And in the first one, he repeats that we can know and be certain of Jesus no less than 39 times. He wanted us to be sure. And he keeps on pointing us to Jesus, saying he's all you need because he is the absolute truth. The first uh, letter that John wrote begins with a sworn testimony, like a witness in a courtroom, of what he had seen and heard. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. He's really going overboard here to make this point that I've seen him. I've seen the Son of God. I've heard him. I've reached out and touched him. And he calls this person, Jesus, the word of life because he's the source of life. You know, I wish I could say to Stephen Fry, look, I don't know all the answers. Nobody does. But this is what I've seen and heard. This is what God's done in my life. This is what he said to me. This is how he has changed me. I know Jesus lives because I know him. And I know he loves me because he died for me. He's given me that assurance which the Bible calls his spirit testifying to my spirit. What John knew because he had experienced it himself, he wants you and I to know so that we can be sure, certain that we have eternal life. Actually to know a person, not an it, the man Jesus, who was so much more than a great man, but God in human form, revealing the Father in the world, speaking God's words, being what the Bible calls the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of the Father. I think the older I get, the less I'm interested in constantly you know, asking questions and debating them and so on. Um, oh, I've lost my place, hang on. Yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to say, I just want to know Jesus, that he knows all the answers and that's enough. Not because I've switched my mind off, but I think I've finally understood, and we, hopefully we all have, that all the answers are in Christ. That he is the proof which I do need that God loves me. Because 1 John 4 says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. So only in him we see God. Only in him we see love. I don't know about you, but I don't want a religion that results in a code of conduct to be adhered to, a mold to be squeezed into, and in the end, rejection for anybody who can't fit into that. You know, at worst, it leads to murder. The need to destroy anybody who disagrees. And we're seeing what religion like that can do, aren't we? 
In my years as a pastor, I learned that we are called to give very, very good news to people that God loves you, that he's proved it, that if you blew it, he's always ready to forgive, that you can have abundant life, which is eternal life. And I learned that the good news doesn't make demands on people. What Jesus is saying to you and me and every one of us, even if you've been coming to church for as long as you can remember, he's just saying, follow me. And you know, that would be my uh, definition of discipleship, following him, not being squeezed into a mold, just following Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was reading something by one of these um, writers who talk a lot about contemplative prayer, which I'm not very good at, because I'm not very good at means still. But he uh, suggested that uh, we spend some time, that I spend some time, I was reading a book, just being still and thinking about Jesus saying, follow me. And it turned into a real spiritual experience for me, actually, um, because I got a real insight. It was as though I knew that he was saying to me, follow me, the person that you really are, the person that you've always been, not the, not the persona that the world demands of you or the church asks of you, church leaders. I know there's a lot of pressure to, to live up to that image that people have but God said the real you who you've always been you come to me you follow me and it's an inner journey that's not restrictive it's a wide open space of talking to him and absolutely being your true self with him now they do say there's one man's truth and another man's truth don't they they say never argue about religion because his or her opinion is just as valid as yours. We don't come to church to be indoctrinated into one or other opinion, but we come to meet the one who is the truth, and he is also love. Some people will fight for truth, for what they believe, but then they forget to love. So they might be zealous, but hard. Some people are kind and compassionate, but with no interest in seeking God and seeking to know the will of God. So they might be soft-hearted, but ineffective. And it's because of this that one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, and I've preached on it before because it is my favorite, John 1.14 says, The word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I just love that. Both grace and truth. You don't see that very often in the world. You see hardliners and you see the wishy-washy people, but he was absolutely full of both grace and truth. A perfect balance, and that balance is only in Jesus he was on trial when he said to Pilate, for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And you can imagine Pilate shrugging. What is truth? One man's truth, another man's option not to believe it. 
as if to say, am I supposed to believe their truth? Your religious leaders, they hadn't even come inside the house because they were being careful not to defile themselves ceremonially, but at the same time, they were plotting murder, and he could see right through their hypocrisy. This man's a professional politician. Every day for him is about compromise, pleasing the important people, balancing what to say and who to say it to. He could have been a child of the 21st century with that philosophy. What is the truth anyway? Everything's a matter of opinion. But he was oblivious to the fact that this was his moment of destiny. Casually asking a question, not waiting for an answer. But he could have paused and looked into the eyes of the young man standing before him. And then he would have seen absolute truth. He let the moment pass. But how often do you and I let the moment pass when you could have glimpsed something, or rather someone, true and unchanging and eternal, but you didn't know it was your moment of destiny? So what for? Why come to church? To really stop and look at Jesus. Whether you're new to church or if you've been coming to church all your life, I say to you that we all need an encounter with Jesus. What is truth? He was standing right in front of you, Pilate. The person who was God and was with God in the beginning was the same tired young man that Pilate sent to his death. That's the miracle of God becoming human. And Pilate was blind to what was happening before his eyes. The elderly John, who loved the church and called them his dear children, he wrote to them to say, look, I am an eyewitness. Jesus is the way to God. He is truth itself. He is love. He is the source of life, a better quality of life, because he is God. What John did, he just pointed the people to Jesus the Son of God who lived for a time in a flesh and blood body, who really did stoop down to our level, every one of us. So what do we come to church for? In one word, Jesus. In three words, the way, the truth, and the life. What for? To meet him, to know him, to have abundant life that stretches into eternity. Truth that is beyond human arguments. All those years ago when that friend of mine says, what for? I couldn't have told her all that. But I could have said then what was true then and is true now. That Jesus is all I need. I want to pray for you. This morning, I'd already written this message and I opened up my uh, daily reading and it said this, it was talking about Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you rest. He's not saying, I will put you to bed, hold your hand and sing you to sleep. In essence, he is saying, I'll get you out of bed, out of your listlessness and exhaustion, out of your condition of being half dead while you're still alive. I will fill you with the spirit of life and you will be sustained by the perfection of vital activity. Father God, we come to you and we recognize the call simply to come to Jesus and follow you. Lord, we 
do everything we can to draw people, to welcome people, to make disciples. And sometimes we confess we make it all too complicated and we thank you for the simplicity of our calling, which is simply to follow you. I just pray for each one here. Lord, I don't know who's here. I don't know whether there are people here who've never been before. I know there are people who come every Sunday. But for every one of us, Lord, we just come to you now as you called us to do. We ask you to give us rest from any um, religious entanglements and just help us to be absolutely our true selves in your presence just to follow you and to see your love for us, Lord, and to experience abundant life that you promised us. Thank you, Jesus, that you really made it all so simple that everything we need is to be found in you. So we look to you, Lord Jesus. We hear you saying, come to me. We hear you saying, follow me. And we just pray that you'll help us to do that every day of our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Um, I just, as I said, I just felt prompted to to mention something that happened at work. I think it was, I think it was Friday, um, and I was. Uh, well, th- 